The Long Road to Mars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Getting to Mars isn't easy, but so far this month, two space agencies have delivered payloads to the red planet's orbit, China and the United Arab Emirates. A NASA mission is also on course for Mars. The UAE's HOPE mission was the first to arrive, sending an orbiter to monitor the global weather on Mars. We'll talk with the head of the UAE space program, Sarah Amiri, and HOPE orbiter program manager, Amran Sharaf, about the UAE's first mission to the Red Planet and the path ahead for HOPE. And NASA's Perseverance rover will land on Mars later this week after a more than seven-month mission. The Martian dune buggy launched from Cape Canaveral back in July on ULA's Atlas V rocket. Getting the buggy to a planet tens of millions of miles from Earth required pinpoint accuracy. We'll talk with ULA's CEO Tori Bruno about the challenges of the mission and ULA's long history of sending spacecraft to the Red Planet. The journey to another world. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. NASA picked United Launch Alliance to send its next-generation Martian rover Perseverance to the Red Planet. ULA has a long history of sending rovers to Mars, with a connection to every U.S. Mars mission. For the most recent launch, ULA used its Atlas V with four solid rocket boosters, a configuration called the Dominator, providing two and a quarter million pounds of thrust on liftoff. But a mission to Mars needs more than just a powerful punch off the planet. It needs to be accurate. That's where our conversation with ULA CEO Tori Bruno begins. It's a cu- there's a couple of ways of looking at this, and I'll give you first kind of just the big picture of these incredible distances involved that are really, in a way, difficult for us as human beings to even comprehend. When we fly out to Mars, you, know, you can't just fly on a straight line. Even that would be millions and millions of miles. The closest approach between Earth and Mars is about 35 million miles. But you can't fly just radially outward from, you know, from Earth to Mars. You have to fly on a big sweeping arc because everything is always in orbit. And we are both, both our planets are in orbit around the sun. So we take something called a Hohmann transfer orbit. And so we launch off of Earth and we're aiming at a point that is millions of miles in front of Mars, where Mars will be seven months later, and it's this big sweeping arc, so that by the time the spacecraft arrives at that point, it's traveled 300 million miles, and it's going to get there precisely when Mars catches up to it and captures it. So these numbers are huge. Mm -hmm. I did the math one time because somebody said, hey, can you scale that down to something on Earth that would be equivalent so I could sort of get my head around it, and I did, and it would be roughly equivalent to being in Paris, hitting down the motorway at about 60 kilometers per hour on a flatbed truck. Imagine that you're standing in the back of that truck as it's zooming down the highway, and you've got a golf club and a golf ball, and you hit a great better-than-Tiger Woods kind of drive (laughs) off of that uh, moving truck, that's the Earth, And that golf ball is going to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, across the U.S., and you're going to sink a hole-in-one at Pebble Beach out in California. That's roughly equivalent to that 
to that whole journey we just described. That is mind-numbing. Crazy. So that's just the distances involved. So obviously you've got to hit that exactly right. But the other thing, the more technical thing now that we kind of get down to brass tacks is the spacecraft itself has to conduct maneuvers in order to be captured by Mars, re-enter the Martian atmosphere at very high velocity at just the right angle, end up at just the right place because we know where we want it to come down. We want it to come down in this Jezero crater. And when we are more accurate in our delivery of the spacecraft into this long sweeping 300 mile journey, 300 million mile journey, that means the spacecraft can do very little orbit corrections along the way and have more fuel available in order to do that in case something comes up. Because sometimes things come up when we do these interplanetary missions. There's a surprise. There's a comm link that goes down and the command is late. There's, you know, the atmospheric conditions are different than what were expected and more fuel is needed to deal with it. Well, we delivered this to one of our most accurate insertions ever, just a a percent of what was allowed in terms of error band. So we literally, you know, split the arrow with an arrow kind of bullseye when we dropped it off. The first thing that manifested in was that the spacecraft waited an extra two weeks to do its first minor orbital correction. And now that it's about to arrive at Mars, it has a substantial margin of propellant that it can use to deal with anything that might come up. And that significantly increases the odds of the mission being successful. So so you hit that hole in one on Pebble Beach, huh? We absolutely did. We sunk it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tori, if you look at... You know, the U.S. missions to Mars, um, they've all been on some sort of uh, vehicle that has a connection to ULA, whether it's the Atlas, the Titan, the Delta. Did I get them all? Was that, was that it? You got it. What have, have your engineers learned over the years about, you know, these numerous missions to Mars? And, and how has that been applied uh, to this most recent launch? Gosh, what a great question. So it, it really probably falls into maybe three broad categories The first one we've already touched on a little bit, which is you got to launch on time. There's a whole set of operational things you do to make sure you arrive there. This mission would have been ordered three years before we launched. It would have taken us all told, you know, more than a year to build the rocket. It took JPL longer than that to design this amazing spacecraft that they put together. And we both have to arrive at the launch pad in that narrow window so that means we have to have the launch pad up and running we've got to get other launches out of the way we've got to make sure the rocket is done and super reliable perfect nothing can go wrong everything integrated in there within a pretty narrow time frame or else we miss that two year every two year window to launch so that's the first thing there's a whole world of logistics and operations that go into all of that to make that happen. So that's the first big thing. Then the next thing are this phenomenal accuracy that we just got through talking about. That's a whole system solution. It's not because, you know, you bought the best GPS receiver, you know, at, uh, you know, at the electronics store and put that on your rocket. It takes a whole bunch of things to make that work. All of the navigation software and computations, the computers, but also 
the way the rocket delivers thrust, the way the rocket is able to turn the thrust on and off, because even if you have a great navigation solution and you go, okay, I've got just the right amount of energy, turn off now, and it takes a, you know, it's kind of sloppy and it takes a while to turn off, all of that is blown. So that whole system solution for how the rocket works, how the engines work, contributing to that amazing accuracy. And then finally, the orbital mechanics of all this that are involved in knowing how to do that journey. And then maybe I'll add one more thing that's a little bit unique when we go to outer planets. Once you go past Earth, it starts getting dark very, very fast. And once you get to Mars, the first of our neighbors going outwards and beyond, for most missions, solar panels are not effective. It's just too dark. There isn't enough light to generate the energy. Mars is really that threshold where some missions can be solar powered and some missions can't. And in this particular case, because this Martian rover is large and has so many experiments on it and so many instruments, it needs a lot of power. It has to be powered by a thing we call a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. It's literally a nuclear battery that relies upon decay of, of plutonium to generate heat that then in turn will make electricity out of, out of uh, a process called thermoelectric generation. It's 11 pounds. It's 11 pounds of plutonium that we have to handle in a very certain way, bring out to our launch site. And in this case, we had already sealed up by design this spacecraft encapsulated in our payload fairing in an ultra clean environment, literally a clean room, then brought it out to the launch pad and set it on top of the rocket and did all of its testing and checkout and stuff. And after all that was done, we showed up with this RTG, this nuclear battery, mm-hmm. and broke the seal through a special access door, essentially outdoors protected by a portable clean room that we built in our giant vertical integration facility to install this battery and then button it all back up safely. As you can imagine, there's a lot of techniques and rules and regulations and things that have to be observed to make that work right. We're really the only company in the U.S. that knows how to do that. Obviously, you have to be certified for it. We're the only folks who are currently certified and allowed to do that kind of work. So that was very, very special, and we've done all of, of the U.S.'s RTG missions for the last many years. So, yeah, we, we have a lot of experience there as well. Just 11 pounds of plutonium, right? Just a little bit. Just, just <laughs> no a big little. deal. <laughs> but today, it's very safe. It really is very safe, but it, uh, it's highly controlled. <laughs> mm-hmm. Finally, Tori, um ULA is finalizing the development of its next generation rocket, the Vulcan. Um, you know, there's a planned mission to the moon to, to um, deliver a lunar payload. But I'm wondering if Vulcan will follow in the footsteps of its younger siblings. Do you have plans to use it for future Mars missions? Oh, absolutely. So the very next Mars mission is the sample return. One of the things that Perseverance will do, and in addition, by the way, to my personal favorite experiment, which is the demonstration of extracting oxygen from the Martian atmosphere, something very important for future human exploration. But in addition to all of that, 
It's going to take samples, cache them, and then later in the decade, we're going to send another spacecraft to Mars to collect the samples and then put them in its own small, tiny rocket and then bring them back to Earth into laboratories that we can study them. We would we look forward to competing for that mission, and we would love to be a part of that, too. Great. Well, we've been speaking with Tori Bruno. He's the president and CEO of United Launch Alliance. Tori, as always, thanks for speaking with us. Call me anytime. You guys are so much fun. We'll dive into the science of perseverance next week with a conversation with Dr. Amy Williams. She's on the hunt for signs of life on the planet. Understanding our place in the universe, whether we truly are alone, whether life is extraordinarily rare, or whether it is ubiquitous in the universe, is one of the most compelling questions I can think of in science. That's next week on the show, but just ahead... A conversation with the team that delivered UAE's first mission to Mars and what's ahead for the ambitious Hope Orbiter. Are We There Yet? is back right after this. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Last week, the first of three missions arrived at the Red Planet. UAE's Hope Orbiter entered a Mars capture orbit, becoming the nation's first interplanetary mission. Hope's journey is an interesting one, and one that happened at a rapid speed. The country announced its plans to start a space agency only a half decade ago. Now, its first orbiter is sending back stunning images of Mars. To talk more about the journey to get here and Hope's scientific goals, we're joined by the head of UAE's space program, Sarah Amiri, and Hope Orbiter Program Manager, Omran Sharaf. Amiri begins the conversation, taking us back to the moment Mission Control confirmed a successful orbital insertion last week first um sort of a my breath was caught uh prior uh, to hearing the moment that we've arrived uh once i heard it an initial sense of relief and i think followed by shock followed by happiness and then perhaps the last seven years hit me <laughs> like a ton of bricks so mixed emotions but really happy that things went according to plan Mm-hmm. And Amran, what about for you? Uh, take me back to that that moment. Was there was there a bit of hesitation that this actually happened? We did this, or were you confident the whole way that that you were going to be able to pull this off? We were confident. Uh, there wasn't hesitation, but there was a sense of of uh, wariness. Uh, and the moment that we found out that actually we are there and it worked well as planned. Uh, like like the minister said, I actually was I was in shock for some time. It took me a couple of minutes just to realize that okay, this actually happened. So while even announcing, I was actually um, still in, in in a moment of shock. Felt relieved, which was good, uh, but at the same time uh, still a little bit worried. Let's be honest. It's Mars. It's far. It's difficult. It's challenging. Uh, it's it's not over yet. We just we just got there, so there's a lot needs to be done. Tell me a little bit about what does need to be done, because right, this this is a major milestone, getting the vehicle into orbit, but that's not where it's going to to live for the rest of its time at Mars, right? What what are the next steps, Amran? What what do you have to do now? Currently, it's in this capture orbit, and it's going to stay in this capture orbit for about two months or less, depends uh, on the, what's going to happen next. Um, so currently what we're doing, basically we're doing the calibration soon, uh, activities for the instruments. Uh, today, actually, we officially have transitioned from 
the MOI phase into the, the, to, into the orbit transfer phase. Uh, we also had uh, uh, a review meeting in which we were discussing whether we need to perform any trajectory correction maneuvers after the orbit insertion to correct for any, uh, let's say, um, issues with, with the orbit. And the decision was a no-go uh, because uh, the, the, we are where we need to be, basically. Uh, so two months from now, we plan to basically be or transition into our science orbit. Uh, and once we are there, we intend to start our science mission. Uh, and hopefully by September this year, start releasing the science data to everyone with no restrictions. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the overall science goals of, of this mission. Sarah, maybe you can bring us up to speed. Um, you know, what are you hoping to observe, discover, what questions do you want to answer uh, with hope? So the first objective is we want to characterize the lower atmosphere of Mars. And that what that means is we want to better understand the weather system of Mars. But the gap in, in, all, in data that we currently have is that we don't have it throughout an entire day. So we don't understand the changes that happen throughout the entire day. Nor do we understand the seasonal changes everywhere on Mars uh, throughout an entire day. Um, so these are aspects that we are going to get due to the coverage of this mission. Um, another aspect we're going to study is characterizing the upper atmosphere of Mars and how far out hydrogen and oxygen extends into space. The third part, which is the new part, because we're doing these two objectives together, we're now able to link them together. So if something happens in the, on the weather system in the lower atmosphere, how much impact does it have on atmospheric loss and loss of hydrogen and oxygen from the atmosphere? What that better helps us understand is what uh, what role did Mars itself have uh, in the loss of its atmosphere? And again, what is the weather system of Mars like throughout an entire day? And that gives us an understanding of climate change and the weather system. Sarah, this is a ambitious mission. Um, as you mentioned, it's filling in these gaps that scientists don't have about, you know, full day weather system. You're looking at this full picture of of Mars. This is ambitious for your program's first mission. Um, what was kind of the, the thought process of, of doing something like this uh, for your first attempt at getting to Mars, albeit it's it, all signs point to it being a successful mission, but I mean, why did you do it? The first is we needed to develop capabilities um, within the country. And to develop capabilities, you can either do it organically and wait for more years than we've had to afford, um, or you do it to develop capabilities as, as soon as possible. We have a need to further diversify our economy and that means that we need to have a solid science and technology base that is fueled by people that are well experienced in designing and developing technology and deploying technology at the same time. Um, and, and a mission to Mars gives you the right risk profile, gives you the right challenges that is necessary and the right building experiences due to, to the complexity of the system to do that. And then perhaps the other side of the question is why, why a scientific mission uh, such as our mission? And the reason is we're sending a spacecraft to Mars might as well send a, a spacecraft that has viable scientific data because you're able to develop your science community in conjunction with developing your ex your technology ex expertise. Uh, and that's why we went to Mars. How were you able to accomplish uh, a planetary mission like this um, in, in what seems to be uh, just the blink of an eye? Th this was a, a very, very quick turnaround from the inception of, of the space program to placing a, a an orbiter 
in Mars, and I'm sure a lot of other countries and organizations are going to be looking at you as as kind of you know writing the book on this. But how were you able to accomplish this? I mean, looking back now, what were some of the successes? So number one is building on the experiences of people who have done this before and forming a team. Um, we had to transition from building Earth observation satellites to planetary exploration. Therefore, we needed to, to take our experienced engineers and, and um, couple that with experienced engineers who have done uh, um, planetary exploration so that we're able to build this mission uh, at the level that is globally competitive and make it a scientific mission and not a technology demonstrator. Um, so we worked together with the University of Colorado Boulder uh, and created a joint um, Emirates Mars mission team uh, with different people from different experiences and ex expertise and background to be able to build this mission. Uh, the other aspect of it is through the process of, of designing this overall system, especially from the early days, we looked at what was the typical sort of flow of developing and designing these missions, the typical flow to provide oversight on these missions, the typical design choices that you make over, over the spacecraft design, the typical design choices you make with regards to the number of instruments that you fly. And we took the things that were absolutely necessary to make these missions from a technical perspective uh, successful and we threw everything else out because they were a result of past failures and we didn't need to carry that unnecessary baggage with us. And then we looked at a design approach once we did that. And uh, we, for example, when it came to reliability, we went down to reducing complexity of design because the more you have redundancy built into the system, the more complex the system is. So instead of having system redundancy, we went all the way down to components picked and choose, chose the things that would work regardless, pick and chose the things that we were a bit iffy about, maintain the same level of reliability that you require for the system, but reduce significantly the complexity. And that provided us with more time to test. And as Omran left saying, we tested and tested and tested, and we designed into the overarching um, timeline that we, ha uh, that we have to ensure that we have ample time to test. And the other aspect of, of being able to do that and having the confidence to be able to do that is peer reviews. We got people to review every stage of this mission, design, development, testing phase to ensure that we've covered everything for the first time, especially that we're doing that. And that's been, been the methodology that has allowed us to get to where we are today. And the science was also a major driver. Uh, we picked science, a gap in science, in science data that is required but that needed to be coupled with a minimal amount of, of instruments uh, that had components within it that have been used before. Uh, and that, that gave us the three instruments instead of a multitude of instruments that are usually flown on such missions, um, but still three impactful scientific objectives uh, are derived from these three instruments. Omran, what were some of the uh, challenges that you ran into during this uh, campaign? You know, what were, what were some of the snags along the way and, and had you overcome them? So, I mean, in general, like, it's, it's the first time we put something in deep space. Uh, it's the first time we operate a spacecraft that goes from Earth into deep space to Mars. Uh, our previous experience was based on spacecrafts around Earth, whether it's communication satellites or Earth observation satellites. Um, from the operations point of view and from the engineering point of view, let's say you are focused on characterizing the system uh, just around Earth. Now we're talking about a seven-month journey in which the spacecraft has to cruise through different space environments. And you have to, the, the work of characterization and understanding the system doesn't stop a month after launch. It continues till the day you reach. 
uh, Mars. Uh, so it was a very good learning experience for us. Um, understanding the effects of, of the cosmic radiation on a system that far away compared to systems that are, let's say, in Earth orbit. It was, it was, it was, it was very good. Uh, the system performed quite well. Uh, and the reason behind that also is basically, uh, as was highlighted by the minister, is that because, again, we tried to focus a lot on the testing side of, 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 of the spacecraft and understanding how it acts in general and try to simulate the space environment during our environmental testing as much as possible. But at the same time, also simplifying the system. That simplification of the system really, really helped us in, 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 in many aspects, especially when understanding any glitches or anything that happens, that was, is this normal, is this something big? The debugging process was much faster during the testing phase, uh, which prepared us for the cruise phase, which even prepared, prepared us much more for the, the Mars orbit insertion phase. Uh, so, I mean, thankfully it went well. Was it easy, was it simple? No, it wasn't. Uh, we were learning, we were learning. So, uh, and, 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 and we, 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 sometimes, you know, you always sometimes over-design things to make systems much more, um, sensitive and smart than you'd want them to be. Uh, and, and this was for us very good in this, knowing how to, where to set the thresholds for things. It's, it's part of us, again, characterizing the system. So uh, I wouldn't say there's any like glitches or hiccups that happened for us. I would say basically that they are, they were part of the process of understanding the system and, and understanding the thresholds and where to set the thresholds uh, to, to, to operate the spacecraft in a more effective way. And finally, Sarah, um, what's next for UAE's Mars ambitions? Where are your eyes locked on next? And, and how does this kind of playbook that you've developed for uh, HOPE play into the future ambitions of your space program? So first part of the question, what's next for Mars, is, is starting our science uh, observations. But I like something that you just said, which is you've, we have developed a playbook, but we've developed a playbook on how to develop it's how to gain experience in a new industry that doesn't exist within the country. How do you go about doing that? And we've had a lot of trial and errors. Things worked well on this mission in terms of developing expertise. Things didn't work well on this mission. And we had to iterate until we found sort of the sweet spot by which we were able to build experience and transfer know-how. And it's through this that we will further develop the space sector because our next focus as a space agency will be on developing the space industry. Similarly, as we see current space agencies transitioning into becoming more of an enabler of a private sector uh, rather than a developer of space uh, systems. We as a space agency have already been set up to do that as a, as a regulator and an enabler for the ecosystem and also a putting in mechanisms by which you build experience and expertise. That's within the space sector. But my wider mandate within the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology also requires the creation of other industrial sectors based on technology. The methodology that we've developed on the Emirates Mars mission is a mechanism by which we can deploy uh, and we will deploy into the current programs. Same thing with adoption of technologies in current sectors. It has been an immense um, learning experience for all of us on this mission from so many different angles, be it the policy perspective and academic and education perspective uh, a, a mission design and expertise development perspective, a human capital and capacity building uh, perspective. Well, Sarah Amran, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay up to date with all these missions on our website. Visit wmfe.org space. 
If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.